Hello, Pastor Matt here. At New Life Baptist Church, we are pleased to be able to make these resources available to the public. Our desire is that these online resources or any other resources you find online would never be used to replace you joyfully belonging to a local church body, but rather that they would be supplemental for your walk with Christ. I pray that through this sermon, the word of the living God would stir your affections for Christ, strengthen your commitment to him, and broaden your understanding of who he is. As you're getting to your seat, if you would be of God's word, flip over to the second chapter of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. We are continuing our four-part series on the necessity and the sufficiency of the gospel leading up to Easter. The goal here is to come Easter morning that this place would just erupt in celebration. We're talking about the heavy weight of the holiness of God that's just absolutely crushing and assaulting to man's sinful nature last week. And this week we're going to learn about man's sinfulness. That's the very simple title of our sermon today is Man is Sinful. I want you to do me a favor and keep your Bible handy because I want you to flip to these passages We have a lot of scripture, I want to tell you that, because I want you to hear the whole counsel of God's word speaking about our nature and how we are and who we are outside of Christ. So if you would keep your Bible handy, we'll be flipping back and forth here and there. Um, For the sake of time, I'll give you the cross-reference and we'll read it, I'll give you a second or two. Um, but you can write it down or read it with us would be preferable, Um, but just so you know what to expect and saying, well, he's reading this too fast. Uh, That's just because we have a a hundred thousand cross-references this morning, but that's good. We want to hear from God's word. We want to know what the scriptures say. It is my conviction, the reason why we see grace is so cheap, and why the gospel is just no big deal today, and why serving the Lord is no big deal, and you can take it or leave it if you want, it's because we have not become confronted with the drastic, radical, all-pervasive, sinful nature that we have. And I want to say at the top that man is sinful, as in all of mankind is sinful, but also you are. Well, this is a great way to start a sermon. Great introduction, Pastor Matt. Thank you. You, individually, oftentimes we think so broadly and generically of sin that, yeah, of course, we are sinners, and we never really arrive at the point of saying, wait a second, I'm a sinner. 
Not just we. Me. I am. And until you become to that point, that is the end of yourself in desperate need of a Savior, you can't truly grasp the gospel. What does a sinful man care that Jesus loves him until he understands what that means? It's a big deal because God is holy and you are sinful. So we're going to spend a good time laying a heavy foundation about man's sinfulness because this is a critical element of the gospel. It is very important that we understand that being under, understanding the radical sinful nature of man is critical. It is foundational. It is fundamental to our understanding of the gospel. So with that in mind, if you would please stand with us as we read God's word. Right now, we're going to read verses 1 through 3, and then we're going to skip down to read verse 12. This is the word of the living God. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promises. Covenants of promise. Listen to this. Having no hope and without God in the world. Let's pray. Merciful, sovereign God. As we approach your word, we dare not do this lightly. We want to come before you with reverence and awe, for you are holy. For even now, the seraphim are above the throne, crying out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. It's that God that we want to learn about right now. It's that God who has the righteous standard to which we are to live up to and none of us do. Father, I pray that you would help us to feel the crushing weight of our sin. Help us to understand how radically damaged we are by sin. Not so that we can leave here feeling condemned, but so that we can grow in our deep, profound appreciation for the unfathomable grace of a holy God. I pray that your word would go forth in power and that you would convict us where necessary. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. Before the gospel offers any comfort 
to sinful man. The gospel confronts man in his sin and convicts him of his sinfulness. Before the gospel offers any comfort to sinful man, the gospel confronts man in his sin and convicts him of his sinfulness. That is to say, so often we begin telling the gospel with, well, you just need to know how valuable you are and how much God loves you. That's it. But before you can be comforted by the gospel, you are confronted and convicted. You must first understand that you stand condemned before you can ever understand and appreciate being justified. See, many of you in here have never been in legal trouble. But as you know of my past, I've been convicted of a felony in the state of Texas. And I understand what it would be like to be there before the judge and he say, you are now justified, your slate is clean. See, to say that to you, who you have a clean slate, it wouldn't be that big of a deal. You would be like, yeah, I know, I have a clean slate. But for someone who knows they are guilty, that is a profound blessing. And in the same way, you and I are all convicted felons in the high court of the Most High God. In the same way, we need to understand that so that we can appreciate and praise the Lord whenever he says, you are justified. We're going to start off looking at our condition of sin, which is point one in your bulletin. Our condition of sin. This is verse one. Look at verse one. And you were, what's that word? Dead. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. It's interesting that the translators stop right there with verse 1. That's all of verse 1. Now, when Paul wrote this, he didn't write it that way, but the translators stopped right there with verse 1, that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So we need to understand our condition of sin. Not merely that we sin. Not merely that we do bad things on the rare occasion. But that we have a condition of sin. He says, you were dead. That implication there is that there are some who still are dead. And there are some who used to be dead. But have been made alive. One of the great mistakes we make today in thinking and speaking of the gospel, specifically as it pertains to what we deem as good people, is that we tend to look at themselves, at them or ourselves, as though we are simply misguided. We simply need to start going to a good church, that's all. You, you want to know how to turn your life around and just start living right? Please tell me how. You, you want to know how to, how to beat your alcoholism? Just start living right. That's what you do. That is the worst thing that we can tell to somebody who's dead in their sin. 
understand the condition that we are in? Is that we are dead. What can a dead man do? It's a rhetorical question because the very obvious answer is nothing. We think of people who are not Christians as merely hurting and lost or broken or sad or struggling. That if they would just start living right and go to church, that Jesus would fix all their hurts and their brokenness. That's all that Jesus is. That's all the gospel is, is a big band-aid for the boo-boo on your soul. In a sense, that's right. Jesus does heal you. We sang a bit ago that he heals your soul. But that we have to understand the reality of our condition. That it is so much more severe than just broken and hurting and misguided. Paul uses a very specific word. And it's not by accident that he says you were dead. Is there a worst case scenario? Is there a worst case scenario than you were dead? Paul uses this very specific word. It's necros. Do you know what it means? Almost every other time it's used, about 122 times that it's used in the New Testament, do you know what it means? Dead. Without life. It means dead. It means no life. It means no heartbeat, no blood flowing through your veins. Almost every other instance, the large majority of the instances rather of necros, are used in the context of being raised from the dead. As in Jesus was raised from the dead. Lazarus was raised from the napping. No. From the dead. And Paul could have said anything in the world, couldn't he have? Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he could have been, it could, this could be anything. And you were hurting in the trespasses and sins. And you were a little bit off in the trap, and you were scared, and you were anxious, and you were depressed. He doesn't say any of those things. He says you were dead. He does that on purpose to indicate that your spirit was lifeless. You were unable and unwilling to respond to God. Think of a show. Perhaps you've seen medical shows. And there's a person being wheeled into the ER, and they were dying. But then a moment comes where they flatline. And it doesn't matter if they put the defibrillator on them. Once they're dead, they're dead. It doesn't matter that their loved ones are screaming and crying out, please don't die, please don't die, they're dead. It doesn't matter what shots of adrenaline they get, they're dead. You understand the point? It doesn't matter what anybody does outside of them. They are not bringing that person back to life. And in the same way, we wonder why those people that we know that are near and dear to us, why they don't respond to God? My friend, they're dead. They're dead in sin. A dead man cannot respond to anything. This is what Paul says, our condition outside of Christ is. For those of us who are now in Christ, it's past tense. But for those of us who are not in Christ, that is present 
tense that you are dead in your trespasses and sins. You were or you are. So it doesn't matter what this dead man attempts to do. Nothing can get this person to respond to the things of God. And that's ultimately what he means by you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Is that you were so, your condition was so poor, so bad, so awful. That you not only didn't have the ability to respond to God. You didn't want to. You cannot and you will not. It's both. And turn to Romans chapter 8. See, it's not merely that we do bad things or live bad lives. It's that we are spiritually dead. We cannot respond to the things of God. Romans chapter 8. I hope you're there. Verses 7 and 8. Romans 8, 7 and 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is kind of anxious before God, is kind of lost to God, is kind of hurting to, no, hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it can not. Notice, it doesn't and it can't. Verse 8, those who are in the flesh try their hardest to please God. Does anyone's translation say that? Those who are in the flesh sometimes please God. Those who are in the flesh are well-meaning people. No, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Church, could the situation be any poorer? Could it be any worse? You're dead. You can't please God. You won't please God. Do you understand that the, the, the cards are so stacked up against you as a sinful person? This is the condition of every single person outside of Jesus Christ. If you are in Christ this morning... This is how bad you were. <laughs> if you are not in Christ this morning, hear clearly the word of the Lord. This is how bad you are. Now, in the present, currently, the mindset on the flesh does not submit to God because it can't. These types of people don't please God because they can't. This is the spiritual deadness that we either have lived in or currently live in its total unresponsiveness to God, total unwillingness to obey or please Him. I would be willing to wager that not one person has ever thought of themselves that way until they've come face to face with the grace of God and have learned it. But in your sin, no one thinks of themselves that way. You know what we think? I'm a pretty good person. I'm, a, I'm pretty good. You know, I'm, I mean, I know I have my flaws. You know, I, I know I have my faults. There's definitely things I could do better. But you know what? I've been going to church. You know, it's improved my mood. And this is how bad our sinfulness is, is that those little things ease our conscience. And we say, you know what? This is okay. I'm okay before God. Church, do we dare think for a moment that 
on the last day when we stand at the great white throne before a holy God that just okay is going to stand. You can try it if you would like. Write these down. Genesis 6, 5. The condition of sinfulness pervades every area of our life. Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Jeremiah 17, 9. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Isaiah 64, 6. Isaiah 64, 6. We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our, listen to this, all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. The culture says, follow your heart. Follow your heart. It's the worst advice that's ever been given to anyone because your heart is wicked and deceitful. You know what that means? That it's evil and it gets you to believe it's lies. Your own heart lies to you. Your own heart gets you to believe the lies that are created from a treasury of wickedness and evil. Jeremiah 17, 9, go look at it. Has anyone ever thought that's that way? No, because what do we say? You know what, I have my flaws, but I have a good heart. I mess up from time to time, but I have, I have a good heart, and the Lord knows my heart. He does, and you know what he sees? Is that it's wicked and deceitful. This is the condition of every single person, you included, myself included, all of us before the Lord. Every single thought of ours, every intention, every action, everything about who we are as people outside of Jesus Christ is polluted, stained, and corrupted by sin. Even our good deeds, Isaiah 64 said, even our righteous deeds. Have you ever tried to clean a window with a dirty towel? Anyone? Or you've been cleaning a window and you use the dirty side of the paper towels? What happens to that window? Does it get clean? It smears, doesn't it? And it gets worse than how you left it. That's your righteousness on your own. I'm cleaning it, I'm cleaning it, I'm cleaning it. Why isn't it getting clean? Because all of your tools are sinful and wicked and broken. They won't work. Now, does this mean that people who are not in Christ can never do anything good? Obviously not. Plenty of sinful people who will die and go to hell do good things all the time. Plenty of people dead in their sin are philanthropists. And they give a lot of money to charity. And they die in their sin. You know why? Because they were trusting their righteous deeds. That's what we do. Is we trust our righteousness. Because our heart lies to us. Your own heart lies to you. Matthew 7, 11. 
If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? This is proof. Evil people give good gifts sometimes. Evil people can do good things. Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? That sounds like a good person, doesn't it? They prophesied in the name of the Lord. They did good deeds in the name of the Lord. They did it in the name of the Lord. Listen to that. A person in church saying, all glory be to Christ. All glory to God. We do this in the name of Jesus. And their heart is dead. Verse 23. And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Isn't that remarkable? How many of us don't prophesy or cast out demons? I'll be willing to wager not one of us. None of us have done these things, and we want to trust our righteous deeds. I don't think so. Luke chapter 6, verse 33 and 34. If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. Sinners are good to people who are good to them. Do you see how those are righteous deeds that equal nothing more than filthy rags? This is our condition outside of Christ. And we will find comfort in these things, and we will tell ourselves that we're good people, and we will look righteous to other people, and other people will look at us and say, man, that is a godly person, and we will be comforted by that. You know why? Because our heart is wicked and deceitful, because the very core of who we are is wicked and evil. Well, not me. Surely, I'm a good person. Surely, there's some redeemable quality about me. Turn to Romans chapter 3. Look at verse 23. For some people have sinned and they fall short of the glory of God. Is that what it says? For all have sinned. Do you realize that if that meant just one person has sinned just one time, that that person is still as equally condemned as the worst person in prison. Why? Because the standard is God's holiness. It's his ultimate perfection. That's the standard. The standard does not be better than the person who sits next to you in church. The standard is be as holy as God is holy. That means mess up one time, you're out, you lose. That's the condition that we all are in. We fall short of the glory of God. He's the righteous standard we can never reach. You know, if we were all to stand up right now and try to jump and hit the middle of that ceiling, some people would get closer than others, but not one of us would touch it, would we? 
That's God's righteous standard. Maybe some people are better than others. Maybe some people do more good deeds than others. But none of us hit God's glorious standard. The problem is not that you lead a life of obvious sinfulness. It's not that you do bad things. It's not that people think you're a bad person. It's that no matter how good you think you are, you can never be good enough on your own to justify yourself before God, whom you stand condemned before. You're condemned because you're a sinner. You aren't a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. Did you hear that? You're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. It's what you do. It's who we are. So much more could be said. But let's look at verse 3 of Ephesians chapter 2. Keep your place in Romans. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 3. We're calling this 3C. He says that you were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind by nature like all of mankind that means everybody that means you and it means it was your nature let's go on to our continuance in sin here is where we continue to compound the issue and cement ourselves in our guilt not only do we have a nature of sin not only as it says in psalm 51 not only were we conceived in sin but we also continue in sin. Look at it. In which you once walked. Verse 2. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You walked in it. What does walk mean? It means you lived in it. This was your lifestyle. You walked following the course of this world. You did what everybody else is doing. What's everybody else doing? Acting like a child of wrath. Acting like a son of disobedience. Transgressing against God's perfect law. Hostile to God. That's what your condition is outside of Christ or was outside of Christ. Which is it for you this morning? Are you still there? Or is this past tense for you? Carrying out the desires of the body. You were dead in sin and you lived in sin. You were born with a nature of sinfulness that caused you to, by default, be spiritually dead and unresponsive to the things of God. And further, you lived out this sinful nature by indulging the whims of your sinful desires. Do you see how radically depraved we are? Not me, Pastor. I was pretty good. You're not disagreeing with me this morning. You're disagreeing with Scripture. Not me, God. I was pretty good. Not me, God. I've been good to you, Lord. You walked in sin. You lived in the passions of the flesh. And you carried out the desires of the body and the mind. Your whole entire life apart from Christ is completely and utterly dominated and ruined by sin. So let's see here. 
In 1 Peter 1, 15 through 16, he says, As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Back in Leviticus, he says to be holy six different times. This is what I call the do's and don'ts of sin. Sin is both the bad things you do and the good things you don't do. Does that make sense? Sin is both the terrible, wicked things you do, and it's also the good, holy, righteous things you don't do. What does that mean? When God hands down the law and says, be holy, for I am holy, and you don't do that, that's sin. When God says, don't commit adultery, and then you go commit adultery, that is sin. It's both the doing and the not doing. When he says, pursue me, when he says, love me with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength, and you don't do that, that is sin. Boy, it sure seems like a lot of things are sin, doesn't it? It's because God's holiness is the standard. It's God's holiness. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. I used to be naive enough to think that I was doing that. Maybe you are still. To dare think that you love the Lord with all your heart? All your mind? Are all your thoughts ever continually based on the Lord? Colossians chapter 3 says, Set your mind on things above. Have you ever had a thought that's not on things above? Anyone? Rhetorical question. Don't raise your hand because all of our hands would go up. Yes, you have. You know why? Because you're not holy. Because you're sinful. You are ruined by sin. You don't just do bad things sometimes. You are wretched before God. We sing the song Amazing Grace. One of my favorite parts of that song is he says, A wretch like me. A wretch like me. Christianity today is about building yourself up in self-help and motivation. and Feel good about yourself. But what does God say is humble yourself before me. And I will lift you up. Churches today were filled with people who are lifting themselves up. And on the last day God says, I will humble the proud. Let that not dare be us. Let's understand the standard is God. This is why the scriptures say that we are by nature children of wrath. We are sons of disobedience, wallowing in our sin. Paul Washer likens our not knowing how sinful we are as a fish doesn't know how wet it is. The fish was born in the ocean, swims in the ocean, eats in the ocean. All that fish knows is water. And that's you and me, except for the water is sin. That's all we know is sinfulness. Let's go back to Romans chapter 3. Because I want the Bible here to answer the little lingering doubt in your mind that surely not me. I'm not that bad. There's some redeemable quality about me. Let's look at verse 9. No, not at all. 
in answer to what then are the Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, how many is righteous? None. And then in case you say, well, I am, or maybe some, he says, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. I bet you've never thought of yourself that way outside of Christ. You know what? My throat is an open grave. Venom of asps is under my lips. Till you're convicted by the Holy Spirit. Here is the worst part of all of that, is verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. We don't tremble at how sinful we are because we don't know how holy God is. Since we don't know how holy God is, We have no fear of God. I'm fine. I'm okay. I'll be all right. I can do it. I'm pretty good. There's no fear of God. Turn back to chapter 1. Look at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against How much ungodliness? All ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What does that mean? Because you're sinful, you don't want to hear the truth. You suppress it. You bury it. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in all the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. I know that we don't worship those kinds of idols anymore, but anything that you put before God is an idol. You have some of those. Anything you put before God is an idol. Anything you put before God is you trading in the truth and the glory of God for a lie. It's lying to you and you're believing it. Because your own heart deceives you. It causes you to believe it. Look at verse 25. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. 
Sin is not merely going out and getting drunk, shoplifting at the local store, or pornography. This is ultimately what sin is. It is exchanging the truth about God and his glory for anything else. That anything else is a lie. It is the refusal to honor God as God. It is worshiping the creature instead of the creator. Back then they carved out idols in the shape of various forms of creation. Today we have nice cars. We have nice phones. We have high fashion brands. We have bank accounts. We have homes. We have friendships. Those are the things that we worship and they are still trading in the truth of God for a lie. Thus, our consequences are just. Look back at Ephesians chapter 2. Our consequences from sin. Ephesians chapter 2, look at verse 12. Remember that you, not just people, you, were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Separated, alienated, strangers, no hope, without God, dead. This is the condition of every single person outside of Jesus Christ. Do you understand how severe this is? You feel the weight of your sin? This is how bad it is. You want to know the implications of our condition of and continuance in sin? It's that you don't even have hope because you're dead. Wow. I didn't make this up, church. You read it for yourself. This is our condition. Hebrews 10, 27 this is the only promise for people who are not in Jesus. The promise that this book has for you, for those of you who carry on in unbelief. A fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. This is the consequences from sin. Romans 6.23 The wages of sin is death. 2 Thessalonians 1, 6b through 9. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Hell is the place where we will be in eternal conscious judgment on account of our sins. Not only will you not know God in this lifetime, you will be separated from him forever. Ruined, depraved, wicked, evil, condemned, set apart for destruction. Do you see that people are more than hurting, broken, and struggling without Christ? We are lost, dead, and condemned the gospel does not call people to Jesus as a cure for their anxiety. The gospel calls people to repent of their depravity. This is the gospel call. Well, not my Jesus, 
Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. If you are listening to me speak right now, it's not because you've gotten away with your sin or because God is overlooking your sin. 2 Peter 3.9 tells us that the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 1 John 1.9 If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Are you kidding me? That's the condition we're in. But if we confess our sins, he will forgive us. Our last point is our only cure for sin is Jesus Christ. Let's look at Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Ephesians 2, look at verse 13 and 14. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 6, 23. The wages of sin is death. You better believe it. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hallelujah. You see, I love this. Scripture just stacks up the cards against you and says, you are this, you're this, you're this, you're this. But God, at the right time, sent his son because God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son to bear your sin, die a, a slave's death on a cross so that you could believe in him be forgiven of your sins and be raised to life. Praise God for the gospel. The only hope we have, the only hope we need is grace through faith in Jesus Christ. As Charles Spurgeon said, I have a great need for Christ. I have a great Christ for my need. Turn to 1 Timothy. This is how we will close. And if you'll stand when you get there. How do you respond if you are not in Christ this morning? As you repent in your sins and you flee to Christ. Because he promises that he will forgive you. He promises that he will wipe your slate clean. He promises that all of your deadness, all of your wretchedness, all of your depravity will be washed white as snow. If you will just repent and trust in him this morning. And if you are not, if you are in Christ this morning, how do you respond exactly like Paul in 1 Timothy? 
1, look at verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. That means that each one of us would say, I am the worst sinner I know. Verse 16, but guess what? I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, as the worst sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Verse 17, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Father in heaven, thank you so much for sending your son to us in love. Thank you so much for doing what we could not ever do. Thank you for justifying us by the spilled blood of Jesus. I pray that you would remind us of our sinfulness, not so that we could walk here with a heavy guilt on our hearts, but so that we could rejoice in the grace of God shown to us in Christ. We pray for all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Grace, peace, and mercy to you all.